Don't go too far. Good morning. We are glad that you're here. Next week, the last back half of the chairs will be missing. So I can see the whites of your eyes here in the front. In the bulletin this morning, there are several announcements. Uh, the Mary Martha meeting tomorrow at 1230. And then um, Saturday, they, they invite the ladies to come for a game day. Bring your board game, bring your snacks, and plan on having fun from 1 o'clock till 3 o'clock-ish. I think that's the proper word, 3 o'clock-ish. Um, take note of the fact that we have a notice today from our missionary to uh, Japan. Been there since 1985, and now his family's come and joined him in the ministry there. They give you an update of what's going on in their part of Japan. And then we have a, a notice from the Callitz County chaplains, and uh, they are trying to, uh, they are endeavoring to bless our first responders with a packet that costs about 50 bucks, and you can read the information there, and if you'd like to be a part of that, they give you an address you can mail your uh, donation to, or you can go on the website and donate. And if you don't want to go to all that hassle, if you just want to put a, a donation in an offering envelope and put chaplains on it, I will forward it on with what the church will uh, help uh, in that particular endeavor to bless our first responders. This morning, we are going to get to one of my favorite parts of John's first letter to the churches in Asia Minor. In case you haven't gathered it yet, this is a message that comes from deep in his heart. And it's a message that was highly anointed of the Holy Spirit to encourage believers to keep on keeping on in the gospel that they heard when they first received Jesus Christ. We'll begin this morning in the 28th um, verse of 1 John chapter 2. We looked at this verse in the final moments of our lesson last Sunday. Now, I'll not repeat any part of that message, but for the sake of context, I want to start there again. This morning, we're going to be a bit more interactive in the message again, and as it is a message that for me cries out for a response from my heart to give worship, to give praise to the one who loves us, with this incredible love. Beginning in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In these two verses, there are three words that catch my attention for our time together today. I want to start with the last of those three words. That word is born. Born. John is writing to refute the false teaching that has cropped up in the church. John says the people are, that are propagating this false teaching, they have the spirit of Antichrist. They are in opposition to the gospel. 
opposition to Christ is the way that John sees them. They have been deceived, and in their deception, they are in the process of trying to lead other people down that path of darkness, away from the true gospel. I've shared several times with you parts of their, their teaching, and basically they were people who believed that they had a secret revelation about how to be in contact with God and how to be at peace with God. They did not believe that Jesus Christ was deity. They believed the Spirit of God came on this man and then left the man before the crucifixion. They believed that your body is irredeemable. There's nothing that can be saved in this human flesh. So just go ahead and do whatever you want as long as you know in your head what they're preaching about God. They denied the deed of Jesus. They denied the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning. It was all a spiritual thing to be experienced in the mind by this great revelation. When I read the last part of verse 29 about born, my mind went to the Gospel of John, the third chapter. And I put it on the screen. I didn't put it in your notes for sake of space. But on the first verse of John 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. I want to add one more word to the word born. Born again. Born again. Jesus or John reminds the listener and you and me that there is a redemption for this flesh with which we are clothed. There is a place of starting over, so to speak, because God created us in his image, and part of that image is we are a spiritual being living in a temple of flesh, a temple of dirt. And when we embrace the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died on the cross for us and rose again from the grave, when we embrace the fact that he is the Son of God in the flesh, God with us, we are born again through grace by faith. And we read these words in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But to all who receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Our first birth through the womb of our mother resulted in earthly life. Our second birth by the Spirit results in eternal life. Eternal life that begins the moment you receive Jesus Christ and goes on into eternity. Eternal life that begins the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If that's proper terminology, you embrace him as your Lord and Savior. And we are in the process of becoming more like him. And contrary to what the Gnostics were teaching about how we live, what we read in verse 29 of this, John says, one way we've been born again is by how we live. One way that we've been, know that we've been born again is by how we live. He said, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Because God lives in us. Amen? Amen. Because he lives in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit, there is going to be a behavior that begins to look like him more and more as we mature in our faith because we are becoming like him. We are becoming like him. That's woven into those, if we know he's righteous, everyone who practices righteousness have been born of him. There should be a family resemblance there should be the fruit of the nature of Jesus that you read about in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Because we have been born again. Unfortunately, I'm old. Some of you say, not really, but yes, I uh, Because I keep remembering all the old songs from 1974 Andrew Covell wrote, wrote the song, Born Again. There's really been a change in me. Born again, just like Jesus said. Born again, all because of Calvary. I'm so glad that I've been born again. Born. Born again. Going back to verse 28 to pick up the other two words. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The second word is appears. Appears. When he appears. This is the first time in this letter that John addresses the second coming of Jesus Christ. These verses, we talked about that briefly last week, but here he addresses the return of Jesus for his bride. When he appears, when he appears, it's the same word that John used in the first chapter, 1 John, in verses 1 and 2. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. And if you look at it in the original language, that same made manifest is the same word appeared. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest or appeared to us. What John is saying in the first chapter, first John, is something along these lines. Something invisible became visible. Something invisible became visible. Something that had been hidden was revealed. In the Old Testament, for 4,000 years, God was around. But did anybody see God? When he appeared, it was in the form of a pillar of fire or clothed by a cloud. When the Shekinah glory came down in the temple or the tabernacle and they dedicated it, it was in the form of a cloud. When Moses wanted to see God, God says, Moses, if you see me, you won't live. So God allowed Moses to see his glory through a cloud. He was hidden. He was there, but he was invisible. He was not seen. Then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. God became flesh and dwelt among us. His name was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that which was invisible appeared. And suddenly we have a face for God. Remember John 14. Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He revealed, he appeared, and showed to us the heart of the Father in a way that, the, that, that had never been seen before. And then he ascended back into heaven, and he said, I will send the Comforter, and he will be in you. Anybody seen the Holy Spirit? We see the effects of the Holy Spirit. We sense his presence. We know he's here. But John says there's coming another day when he will appear. Yes. He will appear. Every eye shall see him. That's what the scripture says. Every eye shall see him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is God that he is the Christ. He is the one for the glory of God. The second word, I forgot to put it in your notes, but I put it on the screen. Coming. Coming. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That word coming... It's interesting. I look it up in the concordance in the 
Greek dictionary. It's the same word that they use to describe the visit of a ruler. A king, an emperor coming to a city. Now, of course, they did not have TV. They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have computers. They didn't have social media. If people wanted to see a dignitary, they had to go physically and be there. And so this coming, the, the picture, I don't know how many of you watched the funeral procession for the queen. But if you watched that as that casket was taken through the roads, there were thousands of people who lined the streets to see that casket go by. We have seen on TV when the Pope has gone to some nations that the crowds will come by the thousands to throng to see him. And so when he says this, when he said he's, we will not shrink in shame at his coming, at his coming. He's talking about Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, we're going to see him. Not only are we going to see him, but I believe that we are going to become part of the parade. Part of the parade that welcomes the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as he comes back. And what a day that is going to be. Would you sing that with me? There is coming a day when the heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand, leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness to pain, no more parting over there, and forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be For my Jesus I shall see And I will 
upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. How do you feel about the second coming of the Lord Jesus? Does it fill you with hope? Or does it fill you with fear? Are you ready to meet him? If you're ready to meet him, I'm sure your heart's full of hope. If you're not, you better get ready. So you can exchange your fear for hope. We come to the verse I've been looking forward to. John suddenly in his writing breaks into a moment of unbounded praise. Now, I don't know if every preacher has the experience, but preparing messages and, and personally I type them out and all of that. But every once in a while, as I'm typing my message or I'm thinking about what I want to type, I'll just come to a point where I'm overwhelmed with the thought that the Holy Spirit drops into my heart or the reality, in this case, John, as he just begins to remember and reflect on the love of God, the love of God. And he just begins this doxology of praise. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What kind of love is this? What kind of love? See what kind of love the Father's given. I wish somehow we were able to grasp the impact of John's statement. What kind of love? Uh, a literal translation would be this. What country does this come from? What country, or maybe if I put it in more modern terms, what planet does this come from? Where did this kind of love come from? In, in my Bible, I have written my, a note to myself when Tony was teaching on 1 John two or three years ago, four or five years ago, however long it was on Wednesday night. 
and he was talking, I wrote myself a note, right in that, in that this is an alien love. It's an out-of-this-world kind of love. It's the same concept that the disciples expressed in Matthew chapter 8. If you read that story in Matthew chapter 8, and they get in the boat to go across the Sea of Galilee, and there's a great storm that comes, but Jesus is in the back of the boat sleeping. They're bay of water as long as they can. They're doing everything they can to save themselves. And they finally awaken Jesus. Jesus, we're about to perish. We're going to drown. And remember what Jesus did? He got up. Oh, you have little faith. And then he spoke to the wind and the waves. Be still. And they were. And they said, what sort of man is this? What world did he come from? What planet did, that even the wind and the seas obey him? They had never met a man with that kind of authority, and neither have you. They never met one who had that ability. John makes this statement, First John. See, this is an alien kind of love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. So for the next little while, I just want to think about God's love. God's love. I want you to see love's origin, where love came from. The Father. The Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. I don't know if this is the greatest revelation that Jesus brought to us of the Father, but it has to rank in the top five. What kind of love the Father has given? God the Creator. God the Omnipotent. God the Omnipresent. God the Omniscient. Yahweh. God Almighty. God the Provider. God the Eternal. He is our Father. He is our Father. And you need to write this down, not only on the paper, but you need to write this in your heart and on your brain. He is the perfect Father. He is the perfect Father. None of us were perfect fathers or are perfect fathers. None of us had a perfect father in the flesh. Some of us had some great fathers, but they don't come anywhere close to the perfect Father. To the perfect Father who loves us with an unconditional love that's forever. God is, He was, and He will be always the same. He does not change. It is so important to understand God is our perfect Father and there is no end to His love. There is no end to His love. His love is a perpetual fountain, a perpetual spring of life. 
Psalms 139, verse 17. David wrote, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. I want to join with Jack Hayford and just celebrate for a few moments. Except I forgot the music. Somebody got the music? I got the chord sheet. and praise to Thee. Father God, my hands I humbly raise to Thee. For Thy mighty power and love amazes me, amazes me, and I stand in awe and worship Father God. Father God, I give all thanks and praise to Thee. Father God, my hands I humbly raise It amazes me, and I stand in awe and worship Father God. Father God, I give all thanks and praise to Thee. Father God, my hands I humbly raise to Thee. Stand in awe and worship Father God. And I stand in awe and worship Father God. The object of his love is us. The Father has given to us. Now I suppose that the impression that makes upon you depends on your view of who you are and who you, who you have been. I know there are people who think, well, 
how could God do any less than love me? But when I remember, or when I realize I'm a sinner, I've missed the mark that I've failed God, I've failed people, I am greatly moved by the fact that the Father loves me. I am moved by John 3.16. I am immensely impressed by what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. Because in that chapter, he gives us a view of God's incredible love as the perfect Father. We were helpless. We were helpless before Christ came into our hearts and lives. Romans 5, 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were powerless, we went through the book of Romans. We took a year to do it. But I hope you remember that we discovered that there was no way possible to keep God's law and be counted as righteous. We were helpless. We were powerless. No matter how good we were. Because the scripture said if you've sinned one of those sins, you've broken one of the commandments, you're guilty of all of them. We were powerless. While we were helpless, what did he do for us? He died for the ungodly. We were sinners. We were sinners. Verse 8, chapter 5, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Let's take it to the next step. When we were proud, overbearing, and our attitude, God, we're treating God with indifference, difficult to live with, self-centered, headstrong, bullheaded. Christ died for us. At that point, we were enemies. We were enemies. Verse 10 says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Some thoughts running through my mind that I didn't type in my notes and I'm trying to sift through what I want to say and what I don't want to say. Our tendency to help people that we see who are, we know beyond a shadow of doubt, they're enemies of God, they're sinners and they're helpless, is to wait until they cry out for help because we've discovered we can't help them until they come to the end of themselves. But God's love went way beyond that. We weren't crying out for help. We didn't even know that we were the end of ourselves because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God 
while we were sinners, while we had no clue about who he was or cared about him, he died in our place. We were powerless, proud, prickly sinners, absolutely opposed to God, enemies of his grace, resenting what God did or didn't do in our lives, resisting when he attempted to reach us. That's Paul's description of who and what we were. Now John says, what amazing love. God puts his bloodstained mantle over us, and now he calls us his children. He calls us his children. And then he puts an emphasis, and so we are. So we are. Amazing. Amazing. Now I realize sometimes we have this thinking that we're such a fine person that God is lucky to have us. I don't care how good you were before you met Jesus and embraced Him as your Savior. You are dead in your sins and your trespasses. You're dead, a helpless sinner. Have you ever smelled anything that was dead? Doomed to eternal damnation. But because of his love as a perfect father reaching out to us, today we are his children. What kind of love? His love is pure. His love is pure. It is without hypocrisy. We are prone to love that which we feel is worth our love. But thank God he loves the unworthy. We have a tendency to love those who love us or we think or hope they might love us if we let them know we love them. My first serious girlfriend, real girlfriend, I tested the waters before approaching her. I was pretty shy. So I left, wrote on a piece of paper and I like and I put her name on that and stuffed it in a desk in the Spanish class. She didn't take Spanish. <laughs> but it was in junior high, and you can depend on some girl to take whatever information you leave to whoever. And some girl found that note and took it to her. And lo and behold, I found a note someplace that said, and she likes me. Uh, God doesn't love like that. He loved me. He loved you when we gave him no thought at all. He loved me in my lost and dead condition. He loved me thinking about my best interest, not his. What in the world can I give God that he needs? He needs nothing. He is holy. He's complete. But He loves me. He loves you. He didn't love me because I was so wonderful or so good looking or intelligent or full of potential. He loved me because I was lost and on my way to hell. And He's the only one who could save me. He loved me in spite of my weakness. 
He loved me in spite of my failures. He loved me in spite of my moments of indifference. His love is pure and holy. Dottie Rambo wrote the lyrics, He looked beyond my faults, and he saw my need. He looked beyond my faults, and he saw my need. Letter B, he lavished his love on us. I love the NIV translation of that first verse. He lavished his love on us. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. The King James says that he bestowed upon us. Jesus made a statement, no greater love has any man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Well, he laid down his life for his enemies, for sinners, for you and me. God loved us so much that he gave his all so that we could be redeemed. God has this infinite amount of love. He could have given us just a little bit out of the reservoir. But he gave the ultimate. He gave himself to die in your place and in my place. God lavished his love on us. 1965, Patricia McGeer wrote a short story that has appeared in numerous magazines since 1965, and there was even a group of people who, who made a film from her, her short story, and they modified it a little bit because they wanted to make the film, and you know how producers take liberty, and they took some liberty with it. But she wrote this story from the perspective of a visitor to some fictional islands called Kinawata and Nurbandi. And the story has, was about this, the, the life of a young man named Johnny Lingo and the egg cow wife. Johnny Lingo was not his given name. On this island, there was a Mr. Harris, an American from Chicago, who had a marketplace that he was running on this island. And he had this propensity to give locals nicknames. And Johnny Lingo was one of them. Now as this visitor has come to this island and going about his business on the island, Johnny Lingo's name kept coming up. If you want to know where the best fishing was, go see Johnny. If you wanted pearls right from the oyster, Johnny's your man. If you want the best price on something that you're exchanging, Johnny Lingo. Then people would smirk and they would laugh. In fact, every time somebody gave off his name, Johnny Lingo, they laughed. They smirked. Kind of mocking. Finally, the visitor quoted Mr. Harris, the Chicago businessman. What is it about Johnny Lingo that it gets everyone to laughing and smirking? Is he for real? Oh, yes, he's one of the brightest young men on the islands. One of the richest, too. Then what's so funny? Well, five months ago, Johnny paid eight cows for his wife. Now, the visitor already knew something about the culture on this island, according to the writer. He was aware that many times a, a young man would 
take two or three cows to a father for his daughter's hand in marriage. That was the exchange. The more desirable the woman, the more cows that were offered. If she was good to look at or had some great ability, four cows, five cows tops. But eight cows? She must have been one beautiful woman. Take your breath away, beautiful woman. Mr. Harris said to the visitor, no, in fact, it would be nice to say that she was rather plain. All the neighbors thought that her dad, Sam, should ask for three cows and be happy if he got one. It had come to a place that he was concerned that she may never get married and she had gone in his hands for the rest of his life. Her name was Sarita. She walked around with her shoulders slouched, her chin tucked down, and she appeared to be afraid of everything, including her own shadow. But one day, Johnny Lingo approached her dad, Sam, and offered him eight cows for her hand in marriage. He didn't try to bargain or negotiate. He just flat out gave eight cows to Sam for Sarita's hand in marriage. Now this made the visitor very curious, and he wanted to meet Johnny Lingo, who happened to be living on the other island. So he would go to the next island, and, and where Johnny and Sarita were making their home. And upon arriving there, and asking Johnny to guide him around and do some things with him, um, he got connected and, and was invited into their home. In the course of their interaction, Johnny asked this visitor, how do they talk about Johnny on the big island? Does, your name, does my name come up? Oh, yes, your name comes up quite a bit. What do they say? That whatever I need here on the island, Johnny Lingo can find it. What else? That you are able to drive the best bargain. Do they speak of Sarita? Oh, yes. What do they say? That you paid eight cows for her. Yes, I did. Why is that? Well, I got to thinking about it. Guys always try to drive a bargain for their wife to see how little they can pay to get a hand in marriage. I want everyone to know I paid eight cows for my Sarita. The visitor thought to himself, there it is. That's his game. It's pride. About that time, Sarita walked into the room to place a vase of flowers on the table. She paused briefly, looking lovingly at her husband, Johnny, across the room. The visitor said she was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. She carried herself with grace, her shoulders high, her chin lifted, her eyes sparkled. She was beautiful. And then she walked out of the room swiftly. Johnny Lingo turned to his visitor and you admire her? Why, yes. But that's not Sarita from the Big Island. They told me she was homely. And that Sam Carew had taken advantage of you. Ah, there's only one Sarita. I don't understand. What happened to her? How did the change come about? Can you imagine what it would be like for the wives to get together and talk about, my man paid two cows? Well, mine paid four. How does the one or two cow wife now feel? I didn't want my Sarita to feel that way. Then you did it to make her happy. 
Yes, I did it to make her happy, but I wanted more than that. You say she's different, and that's true. Many things can change a woman. Things on the outside, things on the inside, but what matters most is what she thinks about herself. On the big island, Sarita thought she was worth nothing, but now she knows she's worth more than any other woman on the island. You mean you wanted her? Yes, I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her more than any other woman. And then Johnny said softly, I wanted an eight-cow wife. In a small way, that parable that that lady wrote describes the way God lavished his love on us. He did not look for the bargain basement price to redeem us and to give us life. God wants you to know you are the most precious person to him. You are worth the blood of his only son to redeem you and to bring you into the family of God. He lavished his love upon you. If you want to change your position, this, this sermon's not over. But it's like commercials. Jesus, he loves me.
somebody say Jesus loves you and Jesus loves me he's no respecter of persons he's no respecter of persons he loves us all as firstborn sons number three loves actual achievements that we should be called children of God and so we are. And so we are. Again, I repeat what I talked about a few moments ago. When we opened our heart, when the Holy Spirit came and opened our heart and understanding to the reality that we needed Jesus as a Savior, we were born again. Life was imparted. The same life that raised Jesus Christ from the grave dwells in you, dwells in me. He gave us the right, the power, to become a child of God. Romans 8.14 said this, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And if we go to the next verse, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We are sons of God. Galatians 4 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. We're not talking about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man in the sense that God created us all and put us all on the planet. When we realize who Jesus is, we became a new creature. We were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Peter tells us that we became partakers of his divine nature by his great and precious promises. That's God's plan in Romans 8, 29, that we be conformed to the image of his firstborn son, Jesus. We are in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. We are now part of the family of life, the family of resurrection, the family of righteousness, the family of light. We are the children of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, Moses, being in the glory, had to cover his face. But we come unveiled, beholding the glory of God, of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. King James says, from glory to glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
We are being changed from one degree of glory to the other. Last Friday night, my wife and I attended a class reunion for my graduating class from Kelso High School back in 19- But because of COVID, it was two years late. Um, so I don't think we were there five minutes when one of my classmates from way back when says to me across probably seven or eight feet away, and so there must have been a dozen people who heard him say it, you look more like your dad every time I see you. And he hadn't seen me for years. I wasn't sure if he meant that in a good way or he meant that you poor soul. But you look more like your dad the older you get. And he's not the first person to tell me that. Probably won't be the last. But here's the deal. As children of God, that's the way it's supposed to be. You look more like your father than you did last year. Because he's transforming us from glory to glory, one step at a time. One step at a time. Because his life flows through us. His DNA spiritually is being poured into us. Number four, love's hope. Love's hope. First John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's our hope. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I believe with all my heart that this existence here is not the end. I believe in eternal life. I believe what Jesus told Martha. He that believes in me will never die because I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, this body will come to an expiration date. We'll buy a box and put what's left of me in there, this, this body. Put it in the ground. I bought a, we've already bought a hole in the ground, haven't seen it yet, but I think it's probably on the bottom part of the hill where the water flows down and we'll be swimming <laughs> till Jesus comes. But you know what? Me, my soul, and my spirit will never die. Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present for the Lord. Now there's a great deal of mystery about death because not many people experience it and come back. I can't answer all the questions. But I can answer from this part. When we see Jesus... We will be as he is. Not as he was, not as he will be, but as he is. In that moment, we will see him face to face. This mortal body will put on immortality. This corruptible body, the come the resurrection day, when my corruptible body will be raised from the grave, and it will be put on Incorruption. I will know nothing more of tendonitis, arthritis, bursitis, or any other itis. 
I will know nothing of weariness, hunger, or thirsting. I will finally be whole. I will finally be clean. I will be as holy as he is. We have this hope. Why? Because the Father loves us. What kind of love is this? Our response to this hope, a life of purity. Our response to this hope, a life of purity. Verse 3 said, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I reiterate what we say often, that we are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace and grace alone. We cannot earn our salvation. You cannot clean yourself up and make yourself presentable to God. You need to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in what he did on the cross. But here's the deal. We continue to live on a planet that's polluted by sin. And as we walk through life, our spiritual feet get dirty. As we walk through life, our spiritual clothing bumps up against the filth of the world and gets dirty from time to time. And if you can't figure out my, what I'm talking about, my metaphor here is every once in a while we don't do the right thing. Every once in a while we say the wrong words. Think the wrong thoughts. That's not the end of our salvation because we walk in the light as he is in the light and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. We, we just say, Jesus, yep, I did it. Forgive me. Purify me. Purify me. We, he, he said, our response is a life of purity. It's a life of walking openly before the Lord, an open book before the Lord. And when he convicts me of sin, confessing that sin. Uh, to purify myself means I will not allow the world to squeeze me into its mold. I will choose to follow Jesus. When there's a crossroads, when there's a decision to make, I'm going to take the way that the Lord will lead me. I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Number six. Such love is worthy of our utmost attention. Such love is worthy of our utmost attention. Don't ignore it. Don't take it for granted. It is Worthy of our utmost attention. I'm going to read from the King James Version, 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Behold, behold, look. The ESV said see. But that doesn't give us the impact of the word in the original Greek. It's take a moment and pay attention. See. Behold, this, you remember when John heard those words? The first time is when John and Andrew were out where John the Baptist was baptizing people and John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. And John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold. And what did John and Andrew do? They left the Baptist and they followed Jesus all day long. 
They began to, and they became two of the apostles that followed him for three years. They paid attention. They gave him attention. He said, behold, pay attention. See what kind of love this is. Give this love your undivided attention. So how do we go about contemplating and embracing the love of God? Letter A, with repentance. With repentance. When we begin to see with eyes of faith the reality that God loved us so much that he sent his son, how can we do anything less than say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I am going to turn and follow you. Forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for my self-standardness. Forgive me for my stubbornness and my self-will. I'm sure that I hit one of those things that every one of us can identify with. Lord, I follow. I choose to follow you. I'm changing the direction of my life. How do we contemplate the love of God? Gratefully. Gratefully. It's beyond the how anybody can think about the incredible display of God's love by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and not be overwhelmed with a sense of thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the price you paid. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let her see a new word, appropriatingly. Appropriatingly. And I don't care how you spell it, because I don't think you'll find it in the dictionary. But we made up an, old, an adverb. Appropriate this love. Don't just think about it. Make it your own. And when I think about appropriating the love of God, I think about Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to jump into the middle of this prayer in verse 17, where he said, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What that passage says to me is, there's no way that I can explain to you and speak to you in a way that you're going to comprehend what John was saying. You need the Holy Spirit to help you today. Take back, take back the blinders. To take away the cataracts, spiritually speaking, that we might somehow be able to comprehend how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of God is for you and for me. 
That's my prayer is that you might be filled, that I might be filled with all the fullness of God's love. Letter D. Contemplate the love of God lovingly. Lovingly. Tell somebody you love them. 1 John 3.16. You all know know John 3.16, but you need to know 1 John. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The Gaithers wrote, I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you. For the one who knows me best loves me most. I am loved. You are loved. I can risk loving you. Let me suggest to you times that you need to just stop and behold the love of God. There are times in our life that you know, we get, there's so many things that we do that are good things to do. We get so wrapped up in life and life just keeps coming. But when the things of this world start to look bright, stop and contemplate the love of the Father that he has for you. When I begin to contemplate God's love for me, I am reminded that everything I see around me is temporary. It will all pass away, all of it. A good love at the Father's love will keep perspective clear, helping me to see there's nothing else in this world that can satisfy the longing of my heart. Nothing. Nothing. Number two, when sin hangs heavy on the conscience. When sin hangs heavy, when you're feeling guilt and condemnation, because you failed to hit the mark, you failed to live up to your resolve, you've blown it. You take, take a good long look at his love that says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. My little children, do not sin, but know this, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Number three, when you're in the storms of life, when you're in the storms of life, instead of saying, why me, O God, begin to remember his love for you. Think about his love. Because when I begin to think about his love, who he is, what he's done, the difficulties, the storms will begin to diminish in size and intensity from my perspective, my view. If you choose to focus on your problems in the midst of a storm, you'll probably end up spitting water like Peter did. When he walked on water and took his eyes off of Jesus. But I focus on Jesus. Isaiah 26, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Number four. When you enter the valley of the shadow of death. When you enter the valley of the shadow of death. 
David outlined how we should think when he wrote Psalms chapter 23. He said, I will not be afraid because you are with me. You're my shepherd. You're the one who provides everything I need. You're the one who guides me in the paths that I should trot. I can trust him completely. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He's there to strengthen me. He's there to encourage me. His goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Number five, when you stand at the grave of a loved one, remember his love. Embrace his love. In John chapter 11, Jesus gave Martha and Mary directions. Remember, he is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. When you stand at the gravesite, remember Easter. Jesus left the grave closed because he didn't need him anymore. He opened the door and didn't close it. We simply pass through the tomb into the presence of God. Remember his love. Because he lives, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. How long should we behold the love of God? Hebrews 12.2 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How long? Till Jesus comes to take you home. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. The ESV says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Stand as we sing the last song before the last prayer. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me. Because you died and rose again I'm forgiven Because you were forsaken I'm accepted You were condemned I'm alive and well Your spirit is within me Because you died and rose again Amazing love How can it be That you my King would die for me Amazing love I know it's true And it's my joy to honor you In all I do you. 
this hope purifies himself thank you for the reminder today <coughs> that life is not about us it's all about you and who we are is all about who you've created us to be Lord my prayer is somehow somehow each and every one of us would have a fresh encounter a fresh immersion in the love that God has for us. That we would no longer live by the opinions that have been heaped upon us by people. We would no longer live by the opinions we've created of ourselves as we've looked at our failures and our shortcomings and compared ourselves with other individuals. But Lord, we remember, Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose again that I might have life and life abundantly. Oh God, thank you for your love. Lord, we go in the power of that love today to be the church. And I pray for those who need to embrace that love today as the Holy Spirit reveals to them that they can open their heart to you and say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I want to serve you all the days of my life. I want to love you like you love me. Help me to know you and to love you all the days of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for your blessing upon each and every individual today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for enduring to the end. God will bless you. Have a great day.